All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. Michael's wanted to advance no Yano this week. How are you doing, guys? Doing good. We uh, <clears throat> we actually got to hang with Yano this week. So uh, where where were you, Mike? I was gonna. I was, I'm sorry. I guess my priorities aren't in order. <laughs> I couldn't make it over there. How was how was he in person? Tall, dressed Tall. nicely. Yeah. Felt like we were yeah. we were dressed to the nines like he was, but it's good to see him. I was on that. You know, you watch that Michael Howell thing. Michael Howell's in a suit. Jack Farley's in a suit. I got a T-shirt. I feel like a bum, but. What are you gonna do? <laughs> what are you gonna, no what gonna do? I think I've owned my last. Mike, I listened to it. I didn't watch it. <laughs> ah, I appreciate that. Thank you, man. Well, you you heard about Yano and his uh, statement. We're all really proud of him. What did he know? Oh, yeah, he's he said he's shaving his head bald. He's in solidarity with Brian. <laughs> hold on a second. You guys don't. Hold on. I've got. Uh, hold on. Yeah, We've I got a little. Oh no 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 no! It's really good. Look at here. We've got to, actually our team has done a little mock up of. <laughs> Of what this could uh, potentially look oh like. <laughs> Horrifying. Horrifying. Oh my god! If you're god. gonna be bald, your ears really gotta be. You gotta, you gotta be bad boys up. You gotta, yeah, yeah, you gotta be aerodynamic. My oh, my one who not work with that. <laughs> my one who invests in some scotch tape. <laughs> Make oh my god. All right. With that, I think we can uh, let's get into it. So, uh, yeah, this is Bell Curve. This is a macro pod. So we got to talk about um, we got to talk about FOMC this week. Yeah. So so basically the the high level is there was the 25 basis point height that we all sort of knew was going to happen. I think the thing that people were looking forward to is, you know, that the context going into the FOMC was, you know, before this, we had expected ongoing hikes. Right. So I think the expectation was if I had to like put a guess on it, probably like a series of 25 basis point hikes that was going to peter off for some period of time. Obviously, with the amount of banking stress, like we'll talk about Credit Suisse a little later. But I think that like spooked people a lot. And there's still a lot of fear around regional banks, uh, like bank stocks are trading absolutely horrendously. I think they're going to put in a new low today. We're, uh, you know, if it, yeah, we're, we're recording this on Thursday, the 23rd. Um, so the question is like, how much more leeway do they have? And is this going to get them to pause rate hikes? You know, Powell comes in, he talks all about inflation. He doesn't really mention any stress in the banking sector whatsoever. Uh, it, it sounded pretty hawkish until we got to the reporter's questions. And then there were a couple of pointed questions and what he changed ongoing hikes to maybe some firming And the exact words of Jay Powell was, I would direct your attention to May and some. So, so everyone's trying to figure out what exactly that means. I'd be curious, you know, what your guys' take was on on that FOMC. Felt felt tense, you know. The the vibe last time when inflation was lower, Jerome was smiling, you know, saying the world deflation a bunch. He was, you know, laughing even. Now it's like you could cut the tension with a knife. He, you can tell he does not want to be there. You can tell this is probably one of the last hikes that he does. You can probably tell that he might not be in this job for too much longer if things keep going south. Like this bank index, all these bank stocks, 
they are trading like Dogecoin. Like, and, and, and you literally have like the Luna chart where it just drops off. I'm not a macroeconomist, but it doesn't look good for Jerome at this point. Or, or really any of his plans as a, as a result. I, I was going to say 100% agree with, with all that. It reminded me of sort of the reciprocal of, I think it was June or July last year, where he literally gets up to the podium and he's holding a piece of paper and he's shaking because he knows like what is about to happen. Like this feels like the equivalent of that. There, You, you can't go back on your words. I mean, you, you kind of have to do what he did, but at the same time, he knows like you're meeting in a hard place with like rate hikes or anything that's going on. I just looked up FRC, First Republic Bank, down another 7% today. Uh, I mean, they are 91% off the all-time high, which is just six months ago. It's not looking good. It's bad. The The two-year as well. So if you look at what the bond market is pricing in, I mean, the two-year fell in anticipate even before the FOMC, and then it fell even lower after Jerome finished talking. You know, basically, the, the thing to understand about the two-year is the two-year and the FOMC policy rate typically walk hand in hand, right? So the two-year dipping lower uh, says, right, that's where the market thinks that the FOM, like the, the policy rate should be. And Jerome has it, you know, at five percent. The two years, uh, just just below four percent. So usually, when this happens, the Fed comes to the market instead of the other way around. And also, typically, what happens, like when the two year crosses the FOMC, that is historically when the Fed starts to change their monetary policy and start cutting instead of hiking. So the signs are kind of there. I mean, you can kind of call it. It's been a it's been a year of rate hikes, and it feels like it's probably over. You know, if, the, if this is the first hiking cycle that you've lived through, congratulations if you're still here and alive and excited about crypto. But, you know, even a year ago, prices were probably not exactly where they are today, but, you know, roughly similar. We've just had so many casualties, even Doe getting arrested or whoever, if, if that was like Doe's body double and like Negro, I, we don't know what exactly happened, but we've come so far and, and so many people have left Uh it does feel like a lot of the damage has been done to the extent it, it would have been done. Two year right now, at least according to TradingView on my phone, is at 3.77%. The, th- the 30 year, this is interesting, is at 3.67%. And granted, the 10 year is at 3.38. But what we're talking about here is, you know, for the last, I don't know how long it's been, nine months, 10 months, we've had an inverted yield curve we actually might be getting back to where the two year is below the 30 year for the first time in a long time. And what that suggests is that rates are going to drop in the short term. They're going to rise in the long term. Exactly. And the, you know, the fed has an enormous amount of control over the short end of the curve, you know, going out to about like definitely two, but even through kind of five years long, the further you get out, the more that's about expectations in terms of growth. And you know, another thing too, that has just been thinking about this week is, it is very difficult to run a bank with an inverted yield curve. And it's kind of a, uh, you know, it's just a tough, banks to drastically oversimplify are supposed to borrow short and lend long. That doesn't work if the short rates are higher than the long rates. And I, yeah, it's just, it's just a tough, it's a tough feature if that's how you fight inflation as well. Do we ever find out who owns these bank stocks? Like these must be sitting in large mutual funds or retirees accounts like i can't name a single person who's ever owned any of the shares of any of these banks yeah i think i think it's probably spread out throughout the s p 500 index funds mutual funds 
Zero Hedge says we've taken about, I think, $400 billion off of financials since this started. Like, that is so much. That is half of crypto wiped. I, I think the other thing, Mike, that you just touched on, which I think is an important call out, is the, the variable that's still in play that we don't really have any control over directly is inflation. And the price, the price metric that, uh, or the inflation metric that Vance and I tracked is the Cleveland Fed puts out the inflation now casting. And as of today, CPI month over month is at 0.3%. PCE is at 0.28%. So if you analyze that, we're actually very close to getting to that, you know, whatever 2%, 2.8% is going to become like the new normal of whatever the, whatever the Fed decides is the, the new rate of inflation that's acceptable. But, the other thing, too, is that historically over the last four months, five months, the inflation now casting print has been higher than what the actual read is. So this this March read, which is, you know, we're on the 23rd of March, so not done yet, but that's where it's trending, I think could be something that suggests that inflation is now not the, the primary cause. And remember, we also don't have anything until May from the Fed. So there's going to be two months of inflation prints before we actually get another Fed meeting, which will be really interesting to see, you know, how the market prices in these changes in, in between now and then. Hear me out. Like the war resolves, inflation resolves, rate cuts, growth scare passes. Like that's the bull case. I think the bear case, which the, is the one I hear the most, is kind of like reminds me a lot of COVID of, you know, the market has it wrong these banks are not going to be able to lend, you know, we've lost business confidence. Like all of these businesses are kind of upside down in their unit economics. I don't know. You just keep seeing tech rip and gold is now at almost its all time high. I think this could be another hated, extremely hated rally. Yeah, you could be right. I mean, this is where the, you know, people have been saying this for a long time. So, you know, just like take this with a big grain of salt, but people have been saying for a long time, the rubber is going to meet the road when you have these incredibly high levels of debt. The Fed and central banks globally have been like very willing to like ease rates. It's been these free, you know, uh, kind of a free lunch for in a lot of people's eyes. But now that's just much tougher to do when you have inflation. And that that point that you brought up, Vance, about um Banks, the way the Jerome Powell, the way he phrased it actually was the the contraction in credit is basically going to be equivalent to a rate hike because, you know, what they're trying to do is they're trying to control the amount of credit that's in the system and banks going under this amount of stress, they're not going to be as willing to extend credit. So the, you know, financial conditions have tightened considerably since last week as well. If you think the bank stuff is really bad, that that's like 10 rate hikes. That you, that you're just basically telling people like, okay, no more lending. Yeah. I, I don't know. He, he just seems increasingly out of touch with reality. I don't think it's going to go very well for him. Well, for folks in crypto, I mean, this is, this is, it's not as drastic in terms of percentages, but it's similar to what happened when all of our C5 lenders blew up the contraction and credit in our space. Right. I mean, this is going on on a much larger scale. Right. It's not, yeah, it's not like blowing up all of the crypto lenders was equivalent to like hiking funding rates. It's just like the system had a heart attack. Do you want, I, like, I don't know what particular insights you, you may or may not have about Credit Suisse, but I do think it's worth, I mean, it feels like forever ago that this happened, but Credit Suisse, you know, they are, they are not uh, First Republic. They're not Silicon Valley Bank. They are a, you know, a very old, very well-established bank. At one point they had about, you know, just under $1 trillion. Um, you know, in terms of assets, like that's fallen in recent years. They made a bunch of bad decisions. 
Uh, we've got the full list here, but yeah, it's not been a good, um, you know, decade for Credit Suisse. They lost uh, five and a half billion on the Archegos blow up a after making after making seventeen and a half million in fees, which just seems like the worst risk reward of of all time. They lost one point seven billion on this green cell capital, uh, you know, trade financing type fund, which was little bit of a scandal when it was happening over in Europe. Uh, they lost hundred million on the Citrix debt deal. So it's been a, it's been a, it's been a tough decade for them basically, but you know, they, uh, you know, they got, they got bought in a, basically a fire sale by UBS at $2 billion. There was actually something pretty significant that happened by the way, in terms of governance uh, around the, the shareholders of Credit Suisse, they were excluded in this deal by the Swiss government. And then, and this is where I like don't really know this. I've sort of read the headlines, but there's a there was a series of bonds, you know, some a pretty significant amount of value that was held in these bonds that got wiped, even though two billion in equity was protected. That is the opposite of how that is supposed to work. Debt is supposed to be senior on the in the capital structure over equity. So this is where look, I'm I'm not an expert in this, so I, I kind of hesitate to talk about it because it's out of my realm, but. You know, people were up in arms, I think rightly so, because, you know, the stuff that holds our financial system together, property laws seem to have been disrespected here, to say the least. feels like we're doing this, like, men in black style, like, concerted effort to memory hole all of this stuff or to sweep it under the rug. Like, when Silicon Valley blew up, their Silicon Valley bank blew up, everyone was acting like that was like a, you know, college credit union that just got destroyed. It's like, no, that's like a huge, it's the second largest bank failure ever. And, you know, now it's spread and it's not just the tech bank. It's like more banks, First Republic, people are trying to say, oh yeah, we put deposits in. Well, it, it might actually fail. We And also we may need government assistance. Like, okay, we're trying to sweep that under the rug. In Europe, Credit Suisse is one of the global systematic important banks and it's just gone and you wiped out 17 billion of bondholder value and something that probably is pretty legally questionable in terms of the transaction. It just feels like we're, we're making this concerted media effort to like not talk about it or not, you know, like blow it out of proportion. But really, I mean, the charts don't lie. If the bank stock index is about to hit a fresh all-time low since COVID, like you might want to check on some things. You forgot one, which is Signature Bank. Also, on a Sunday, oh. was shut down. Zero. When, when Signature Bank killed itself. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it, it got suicided. <laughs> I think. I, I think there's actually going to be a lot of. Uh, there's going to be a lot of blowback from all of these actions because all of these things are going to get litigated in the courts eventually. When the dust settles, when 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 all this stuff stops. We're going to have some lawsuits. We're going to have some suits. We're going to have some figure figuring out what the hell happened and who made decisions. FOIA requests. You know, there's going to be some some questioning. There's going to be some depositions. We're I, we're going to get to the bottom of this, but I agree. Right now, it looks pretty sketchy. That being said, there there is kind of a funny tweet that I found this week. Um, Credit Suisse fines by year. Did you guys see this? Total amounts of fines. I'll put it in the chat. It's uh. I don't know if these are all going in the Swiss government. 2022, 700 million. 2021, 280 million. 2018, 90 million. 2017, 5.4 billion. Like, it just goes on and on back to 2002. It's pretty incredible. I mean, I, I think someone on, on some podcast this week talked about it, but it was like a very well-known secret that Credit Suisse would do business with anyone. And I think, you know, the proof is in the pudding. You know, 
other people have since brought up this point. I mean, look, if you have if you do business with bad people, I think a lot of the charges that that made their lives hard for the last decade where there were, you know, accusations of impropriety and stuff like that. But one of the challenges for banks, you know, the implicit understanding of regional banks is in order to compete with these gigantic, you know, banks that have access to the best customers, lowest cost of capital, et cetera, you have to take a little bit more risk. So one of the undesirable like kind of side effects of this whole weird thing that that regulators are trying to do is they're just, you know, they're making a very difficult environment to be a, a small regional bank. And that's just going to lead to more consolidation. And then, I don't know, like what, what's the difference then if, if all these, these if there's only a couple of small banks, it, they, they become like arms of the state. They're kind of de facto nationalized in a way. Like I, I find enormous issue with that. At, at that point, they are nationalized. If we have four banks and all four of them are the service providers of all banking infrastructure for the entire country, for all businesses, for everywhere, community, nationwide, federally, everything, that's a problem. That that means that we have no competition in a major financial sector of you know supposed growth. Um, and you don't have diversification of products. Like you don't have any sort of ability to compete and break through. Um, so yeah, but I mean, what we're seeing right now is the riskiest, the most heterogeneous and very specific banks are, are going under the gun right now, but this is not over. I think that when Silicon Valley Bank blew up, one of the things that we talked about internally was this is not the end, this is the beginning. And I think we're starting to see the, the rest of the dominoes start to fall. That's why I'm kind of like, <clears throat> I don't agree with Balaji, but I, I see what he's doing and I see the dots he's connecting. And it feels like we're kind of building to that point in the, in the macro sense where it's like kind of getting frenzied and anything can happen, including Bitcoin going to a million, but not in the next 90 days. But if this is the path we're really going to go down, like I, I definitely would not bet against Balaji with you know, any time frame less than a year. Like I, I do think he is, and maybe it's not a million, maybe it's something less than that. But the thing that, that I'm personally internalizing about where we are in the market right now feels like 2019 when everyone started to put out these crazy markers, you know, Bitcoin's trading at 3k at that point, And people are like, it's going to a hundred. Willie was doing on-chain analysis. He's like, it's going to 200 to 400. And so like, People are starting to put these markers out and the markers are such a key part of bull market psychology, whether you want to do like plan B or like, I think maybe the rainbow chart is also plan B. I, I forget, but like, you know, all these like crazy kind of like, uh, just like, that's Eric wall. Yeah. That might be Eric wall, but like people index on these things and they're kind of the roadmap for, okay. Like things look kind of crazy right now. Things look kind of bad, but like we're staying till million. And a million is is 50x from here in Bitcoin or 40x or whatever it is. So even despite it not reaching 100k last cycle, people are even more bullish. And that that's kind of like that's the animal spirits that you think about. That's that's when they're reignited, in my opinion. My my favorite line from the Bology podcast on uh, I think it was Moment of Zen was uh, he said the critique that Mark Andreessen has given me is that when I'm right, I'm off by some order of time, but it happens or I'm too early. And when I'm wrong, I say it's going to 11, but it only goes to eight or nine. And I think that that's a really good framework to think about Balaji's perspectives, which is that directionally, he's probably right. Like we're going to move in some direction that he is completely right about. He also was probably, you know, the one person in January or like one of the 10 people in January of 2020 
that was calling that this was, you know, a lab outbreak. It was going to spread virally. You know, it's it's going to be disastrous for the entire world. Like you can't stop it. It's a viral outbreak. And he was completely right about that. And he was calling it three months before basically anybody else was. Um, so I, you can't fault him for, you know, his perspectives. He's well-researched. He's well-read. He knows what he's talking about. It's possible that he's wrong about the time. And it's also possible that to Vance's point, it, it goes in that direction. It just doesn't hit a million dollars in 88 more days. Yeah, we need to get moving if it's going to get there. So let's, uh, let's all buy our Bitcoin today. Do your duty. Yeah, my first instinct is not to fade Balaji. Like, he doesn't put out too many predictions. He'll put out, like, weird science stuff and, like, you know, seafaring and the network state and all that jazz. But, you know, if he's putting out hard numbers and he's betting real money on it, I'm kind of inclined to believe him directionally. There's a um, – I, I have kind of complicated feelings in how I think about this. Like, the, like people have – people writ large in society, like, have systems for how to handle things. The – from game theory, from people just being something being irresponsible in our group psychology, whatever, humanity has this thing where we get way out ahead of our skis. We create too much credit. We do all this stuff. And then there needs to be some kind of big reset. And there's probably all this game theory for why that happens. But like, that's what does happen. The way governments have historically handled that without defaulting, which causes an enormous amount of consternation and probably like deaths and stuff like that, because people are very serious about that kind of thing. They soft default. So what they do is they implement capital controls and they do financial oppression. They hold, uh, you know, yields, interest rates very low. They let inflation run hot. And there's this kind of uncomfortable, but you do accomplish this thing called a reset. I think what Balaji's keying in on is I'm, I'm not okay with that system anymore. Like the, I don't want to do that system anymore. You made decisions here at this period of time that I shouldn't necessarily be holding to. And I'm ringing the fire alarm. Um, the, you know, part of, I feel like that too. That's how I feel. I'm, I'm like in awe. I'm just shocked all the time by the generation that came before us. Like, how the hell did you guys make this decision? This is completely irresponsible decision-making that shouldn't be on us. But also then I kind of try to play out, well, what would happen if we all opted out of the system and the U S was just bankrupt. And I try to imagine my life, like waking up in that world. I'm like, woof, that would suck. So I kind of have complicated emotions about this i'm not really sure where i land yeah bitcoin's a tough one because it does have like that doomer mentality where someone has to lose for you to succeed like the other like things like eth feel a little bit less zero-sum because it's like you're creating real on-chain value that hopefully is benefiting more people than just yourself and, and nobody's losing on the other side of it but i still can't find any real flaws in Balaji's math like demographically you know there's more old people they're going to need more money to care for them in a medical sense for the rest of their lives. There's less young people. Like we're kind of over the demographic hill. There's a lot of debt. It needs to be refinanced. We're going to print more money. Like this is math you can do on a napkin that you really can't refute. It just depends on where we go from here. Are we going to be this indebted society kind of like Japan or, or, or is there a different path potentially? But the other path does mean a lot of pain for people who don't hold, you know, whatever the chosen assets might be. And there's no guarantee that it's Bitcoin. It could be things like gold, could be things that are commodities or real estate, but it doesn't look really good, you know, in any sense for people who don't hold those types of assets. So one of the most fundamental books that frankly I've ever read, but I think it's also a key point to Balaji's entire argument is The Changing World Order by Ray Dalio. And it, it came out maybe like two, two, maybe three years ago. And it basically talks about the long-term debt cycles in relation to the short-term debt cycles. 
And the long-term debt cycles essentially are, are such that there is, you know, 100 to 150 year process that happens where there's a new country and that country becomes the reserve of world currency. And then it becomes the massive financial center of the world. It gets to be so large, it becomes overbearing with debt and that eventually they lose reserve currency status and a new country steps up and takes over reserve currency status. Part of what Balaji is saying is Bitcoin is one of the paths that we could have going forward. He's also acknowledging that, frankly, RMB is going to be one of the other paths that we could have going forward, where China is now the new reserve currency of the world, where it becomes the new hegemon, whereas the United States basically becomes the same thing as the UK and the same thing as the Netherlands before that. Like there, there are these processes in history. It's not just like it. It is just math on on a napkin, but it's also historical context that you can apply to this that has happened three times previously. And it feels like, and all the all the information in Ray Dalio's book is also true that we're in the middle of that process of transitioning, you know, global reserve currency status to a new country or a new asset. I'd, ra- I'd rather be Bitcoin than Chinese. Hundred percent, hundred percent. There's no, qu- there's no question. I'm just saying that there is also another path that is in the same logic thread that isn't Bitcoin going to a million or isn't this, you know, network state that we're talking about. It's another country taking up the reins from what we've had over the last hundred years. The only reason I, I disagree with that is. Uh, relative to most other countries, the US is in a better debt position. And so like all of the emerging markets and even places like China have a lot more debt, but also like demographically, we look a lot better than other countries as well. Look at a country like Japan, look at a country like China or Korea, like they're further over the hill. And so like, there's not a clear like, okay, um, this is the country or this is the type of currency that we might want. There's just no good options if, if you're looking at it on a very long time scale. So I completely agree with that perspective. Just just to play devil's advocate, going into the process that made us the, the global reserve currency of the world, which was World War II, we also looked like that. We also looked like we were a smaller growth country. We were not in the top 10 in terms of GDP or in terms of economic or militaristic power. And there was a catalyst that changed all of that in favor of the United States. It, it is possible that this all can change very rapidly. Two ocean superpower demographically, you know, in a much earlier state at that point, the world war definitely catalyzed it. But like the U.S. was also going, was always going to be the most powerful country on earth just because of its geography. And if there, if you anyone wants to read a book on this, it's called uh, 10 Maps That Changed the World. It's really interesting. It's just a book about geography that tells the history of like why certain nations are powerful, why certain nations aren't. For instance, Russia doesn't have a warm water port. Like that's been their challenge throughout their entire history. It, it like, it's funny. Like it's in a wave of like a lot of technology. A lot of times it just does boil down to like rocks and dirt and and you know where you are and and stuff like that. To be clear, I I completely support this as well. Also, another book, Peter Zihan, Accidental Superpower. It's the exact same logic. As long as you're connected to it, oceans, you're fine. Canada somehow didn't make that work. It really is mind blowing that like. The guys with all the rocks and dirt and trees had the most inflation when like push came to shove. Like what? And, and oil. And oil. I know. Oh, I love Canada, but fuck, it's just such a brutal place. <laughs> They're chilled out, people. I one thing that uh, I, I agree with parts of what both of you are saying. Let me. Um, I'm not sure if I've ever articulated this to you, but I my concern actually in this, like I see a lot of stuff through the lens of this like great power competition with China. But what I think is the most likely outcome is. Uh, I think the U.S. is, even though there's this, 
you know, perception out there that, oh, the China's playing the long game and we're just bungling and, you know, can't walk over two feet in the United States. I don't think that's the case. I think we're actually far more competent than most people think. Like we're still the superpower. But I think what's going to happen is, you know, usually, you know, to Dalio's point, the thing that accompanies these deleveragings that he's talking about is external conflict because people internally start looking for someone to blame. You already see that we're going to ban TikTok. You know, there's, you know, there was the Chips Act. So all of this, you know, rising hostility, they're going to look for a bad guy in the form of China. I think if it comes to some sort of power competition, the U.S. will win, but they're going to erode freedoms along the way. Do you see what I'm saying? Like they already want to track every every transaction over six hundred dollars. You know the old politicians thing. Um, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. I'm sure that there are people who've been around the block and think like this. You know, oh, great power competition. Everyone thinks China's a threat. They're not a threat. We're going to be fine. Oh, and then, but to beat China, we need every transaction over five dollars to be directly emailed to Jenny Yellen. I'm like kind of making hyperbole here, but do you see what I'm? Do you see Where'd what I'm you getting get that at? Five dollars. I don't know. <laughs> that's my that's Where'd my concern. That's I my mean, yeah, yeah. That's my like, concern. You know, temporary programs become permanent. The permanent programs get more restrictive. You know, get your COVID booster every year, get it twice a year. No thanks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, the, the these are this is the entire argument that Balaji presents, which is basically we're on this path. And there is the path from a more economic geopolitical perspective, which is, you know, China or Russia or whomever is going to be, you know, the next global hegemon. I agree there is another path, which is the network state, which is what he talks about, which is what he promotes, which is we are not going to actually lose. I mean, look at Russia and think about, you know, the superpower militaristic power that they supposedly had, but they've been at war with Ukraine for a year now. And it's still not clear who is absolutely winning that conflict. And just think about that in relation to, you know, the military of the United States. And there's no question that we are not going to be fine, but that, that we are going to be fine if we were ever to get into a skirmish with anybody. But I think your point is exactly right, which is the network state actually is the bigger threat. You know, what's happening domestically and what we can do and what we're losing domestically is going to be the bigger problem. It's just going to happen like a, like a toad in slow boiling water. You're not going to know it's boiling until it's too late. I, I do think like all of our politicians are, are so old and people say that that's really terrible. You know, they are old for sure, but that is both a feature and a bug. Like they are going to either, you know, age out of their posts uh, gracefully or not gracefully. But like that's coming. DeSantis is 44. You know, like the, the next people up are young. There's a Gen Z congressman in there. Like it's happening. We're we're slowly taking over, and the biggest issue is that none of these people realize how impactful technology is. You know, I don't know if you guys watched the TikTok questioning, but there weren't that many questions. It was just them saying things at the guy and him getting kind of flustered and them not really knowing how it worked. It was just really embarrassing. Like those hearings in ten years will look a lot better for whatever tech company or protocol is being questioned, and I think that's ultimately what you're playing for. Like Diane Feinstein. Michael and I's uh, local congresswoman. How long has she been in Congress? Thirty years, forty. Like so old, you know. But she's not running for re-election next year. Had a great career, great life. You know, hats off to you. But whoever's next needs to understand this at a little bit more of a you know a deeper level than she did. 
I mean, she's not the. It's not the same district, but look at the look at one of the replacements, Rokan. You know, someone who actually understands it goes on Meet the Press, calls for the bailout of Silicon Valley Bank, probably initiates that. Like that type of energy, that type of perspective. You know, Ro was there for that, of course. But you know that that was the catalyst on Saturday, or maybe it was even Sunday that started the process, or at least furthered the process to be able to get you know that solution solved very rapidly. I, I mean, there, there's a famous line in science that is progress happens one funeral at a time. And I think that there is, there is like, obviously not calling for anybody to, to pass away, but at the same time, there is a changing of the guard that's going to have to happen in the next decade where we're going to have the first generation of more than not a congressperson or a senator will have been grown up in an age where the internet existed. Think about that. Every single person who is in Congress right now, basically the vast majority of them saw the internet go from zero to something. But imagine having the majority of the people who are the elected officials of our country be in in place of power where they just have known about technology from the start. And I feel like there is a huge difference for people who just like have known about it from the start and have grown up with it, have seen it. And like that's been just something as commonplace as electricity or water you just understand technology at a much better, deeper level. And we're going to see that happen in the next decade because that, that aging up is happening. Imagine when that's regulators too. I, you know what I also think is um, it's been instructive and kind of eye-opening and kind of scary that no one at banks considered the impact that mobile banking would have on bank runs. Like this is so bad and so embarrassing. Nobody's it's happening faster that. than before. Yeah. What? Of course. Yeah. That was that was a real eye opener to me. And you know what it made me think of is this whole this whole phase that we're talking about where there's financial oppression and yield curve control and stuff like that. That's never been tried in an era of Twitter. You know, 24/7 pundits it, 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 you know, these people I just don't think they understand the blowback that they'll that they'll get. Also the the whole system is global. It's so much more global now. You can't just ring fence the United States like you were able to do. I think it's going to be not it's going to go poorly. I think they're going to try it and I think it's going to go poorly. And and more people are learning about this stuff too. Like yeah, I know. All all the macro pods you guys have are are probably blowing up just because it's like people are starting to learn about this stuff and they probably never understood it before. Like even myself, I didn't really know what a bond was or like what a yield curve was. And I studied business in college until like 2015, like a couple years after I graduated. <laughs> until like three months ago. Framework really, <laughs> LPs, you listening? And, and like 90% of people, if you ask them, they would have no idea how, how that works. Like I'm with you. Ask them, ask them how a two-year bond works mechanically. Like, when do you get the money? When do you put the money up? When do you get things back? They're not going to know. But like now they will, you know, and, and increasingly these things of like, ooh, it's the BTFP, it's the QE, it's the different, you know, three-letter acronym. Like people are just going to see through that stuff. I'm, I'm going to be the cynic here and say that people will still not understand it. And that's the big problem. Enough and will. I think more that people will. Uh, more will. I totally agree with that. More will. Enough will. Like the, the market is growing. But this is going to, unless it is something that becomes so cataclysmic that if it faces every single United States person, every single person under the sun, it's really just not going to be something that people pay attention to. Kind of like every regional bank blowing up. <laughs> At this very moment, we don't have that. 
but it could happen. I'm not, I'm not saying it, you know, we're going to head into the cataclysm as I'm saying, but if that happens, I think a lot of people, a lot more people will know, but definitely more people know more now than, you know, like 12 months ago. You know, people also have a sense of things being unfair, even if they don't quite exactly know the mechanics and how all of it works. I've actually kind of noticed this about finance in general too. Finance is complicated, right? It's like complicated how all the mechanics of everything works exactly. And oftentimes I do think people, like people say Citadel Securities is front running and Citadel's like, no, we're not, blah, 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 because of some technical, you know, technical reason for why they're not exactly doing it. But you printed $20 billion last year, friends. Like, yeah, you probably are in some indirect way, you know? And they get to say, no, we're not. And you don't know what you're talking about. But I think people generally over a long enough time have, have a sense if things are working properly or working for them or if things are fair and if they're not. And even if people can't pinpoint it, I think they generally have a, de- a sense that something's not going particularly well. That's actually a little dangerous too when that happens because then people are just mad, the motions are flying and... I found it harder to talk with people about this stuff. People like sometimes stuff that would just be a discussion is, is a, uh, you know, emotions get involved much sooner we, than they. We are force feeding have. people financial literacy, like inflation. Okay. You got to figure out exactly how much your money is, is worth. Okay. All this bank stuff. Like you got to figure out where exactly your money is hanging out. Like I don't, I can't even remember, but when I was, when I graduated from college, I don't think I thought about any of this. But this well, is a, a classics graduated. major. Yeah, I was a classics major. <laughs> but now they're talking about. I was translating Greek. <laughs> yeah, we also graduated college into a decade of nothing but up and to the right, zero interest rate policy, nothing but up and to the right. Put your money in the S and P five hundred; it'll grow seven to ten percent a year, maybe twenty. Like tech is going to continue to grow. Growth is is taking over. There's no such thing as value investing. Like. We literally graduated at a decade of the exact same thing happening every single year after year. And this is the first change agent that we've had post-graduation in the last 13 years. It kind of feels like that's what Bellagi is trying to do is just take that to the next level of like, okay, these localized problems of inflation and your banks being insolvent, like zoom out. What if this really starts to domino? Uh, I kind of don't like the doom and gloom stuff he does, but I, I understand the point. And if he's putting real money behind it, he has my support. It's going to be a weird, weird decade. But, you know, there's so much, you know what else? The other thing that I've, because, yeah, to your point, we host a bunch of macro podcasts. We do stuff that's like way more in the weeds. A great way to feel kind of existentially nervous is to focus in on this stuff. A great way to feel very sure and like happy is to talk to people who are like deep in the weeds of building something because they're so unaware of what's like going on. And, I think it's the way to live personally. I get interested in this stuff. I pay a lot of attention to it, but you know, talking to developers like makes me happy <laughs> to be honest with you. It depends on what you're building or developing <laughs> because when your job is also to pay attention to what's going on and decide what you're building is the right thing for what's going on. I never wanted to learn any of this stuff. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I had no interest. Yeah. yeah. I'm interested in it from a purely like it's it, in a very important sense is how things work, you know, and some honestly, Michael, you said like people don't want to know. I've heard people talk about this, you know, 10. I'll, I'll be honest because we're admitting that we didn't know what bonds were on this podcast. I didn't realize that we had a central bank 
like in 2018, you know, when I was getting into crypto, I was like, oh, a central bank, like, okay, what is this thing? And now everyone in America knows who Jerome Powell is. They know him by name, you know, that's Mike, not this a is a, this, this is a, this is a safe space. You know, it's in the tone of silence. Anything <laughs> else you want to admit? <laughs> no, that's good. That's, Jerome, Jerome Powell is now focus of meme. He's, he's yeah, going viral. Yeah. He's going viral. Yeah. You know what blows my mind is that that guy wants to be in that position. <laughs> oh, that it, was, I, it was a pretty cushy job until recently. <laughs> Lots of people would tell you how smart you were until things really. I was going to say there, there was like a three month period of time where he got, you know, ripped by Trump. But other than that, it's been pretty nice. Dude, he's just out of the frying pan into the fire, just getting jabbed by Trump on Twitter straight. I was going to say, I don't know if he wants this job ever since whatever FOMC meeting it was where he was literally shaking at the podium. That was, I thought he was shaking a little bit. This one, he, he has his paper. Someone definitely told him like Jerome, Jerry, make sure you put that paper on that pedestal. (laughs) Do not hold that paper. (laughs) I saw him like, you know, he's like, he's almost done. He picks it back up and his, his hands are stuttering. I was like, I felt bad for the guy. Didn't make me feel confident, though. The whole gang has had a good run. Yellen, Brian Deese, Powell. There has to be. Like, you can't... We haven't even gotten to the part where we've started assigning blame. And, like, that is the most important question, uh, especially politically. I I don't know how they survive this. (laughs) I don't think they will. Do you you want another thing that I think has uh, also flown under the radar? Maybe it hasn't. I just haven't been paying attention. The thing that got dead and killed the most in the last 12 months, modern monetary theory. Every, everyone who was talking about how inflation isn't ever going to come into play, we can literally print money forever. Let's just like blow more money on the problem. It's going to be fine. Every single one of those theorists, it doesn't feel good to be you right now. They were on a sick one for like 10 years and then it didn't work. I mean, that's that's literally how crazy it got. Yeah. That's how crazy the last decade got, where we were just like, throw out every theory we have about money. We can print it into bazillion. I guarantee you that comes back, though. Yeah. Long enough I don't know if that it. specific idea does, It'll but I think a lot letters. of It'll the, be the con- Exactly. Exactly. Dude, you know what is so crazy about this stuff is that it's so apparent in history. It's not even hidden. Like, oh, I'm like some scholar and I look at this stuff. Inflation, price caps, you know, like nationalization of it. All of this stuff has happened many times throughout history. And it's just funny that the, the the same solutions are provided and they do not work. But people, that's my frustration with Liz Warren. I'm like, you are a smart person. She is. Yeah. Well, she's uh, a smart person. She's a smart person. She's a savvy politician. I think it's important to give people the benefit of the doubt. She is. Go look at her early stuff. I'm from Massachusetts, actually. You're a fan of like her early Warren. work? <laughs> yeah, I'm a fan of the early years. I like the old Warren. Okay. No, not, <laughs> not going to do it. Uh, but, yeah, she, no, she's a smart She's a smart person. She's a, The problem is you have all these politicians saying stuff they don't believe. I talked to a um, – I'm recording this podcast with a guy who's ex-FDIC, ex-Federal Reserve on Friday. And I was talking to him about some of this stuff. And I think we would all be pretty disgusted if we actually knew how it went, really went down in Washington. I, it's the stuff, kind of stuff you know 
you know, you're like, oh, I'm sure it would be bad, but then you dig in and it's probably so much worse than you even imagined it would possibly be. House, House, of, Car- House of Cards was a documentary. I've got a, I've got a friend in a group chat and it's kind of like a political chat or it's turned into one at least over the last couple of years. And he was like one of the few people who was like, I'm on, I'm on Liz Warren's side. I'm, I'm absolutely supportive of her. Every like two to three months, he texts me and is just like, I can't believe how wrong I was. I was so wrong. You know what? Robin Williams said this as a joke years ago, but I think they should actually do this. Politicians should have to disclose who their biggest donors are. They should just have to wear it on their clothes. Like when they're, when they're talking, it would solve so many problems. Do they do that? They do. You can you can go and see anybody who donates, who they donated to, and and you know all that. Like the super packs and stuff. Those are all dark. You can't tell a well. You can't tell who's donated to them, but you can't tell what they did with the money, which candidates they supported. It would just super below the fold. You can't tell. Like it is, it is cloak and dagger at best. Like yeah, a forensic accountant could put it together and be like, okay, this money ties to there, and okay, there we go, and. But no, like it's not for you, the layperson. Let me tell you about an example of this I saw today. So the TikTok hearing was today, and Jamal Bowman, the congressman from New York, held a protest outside of Capitol Hill, not against TikTok, for TikTok. And he had like 20 creators with him. And it was like this like, we need to keep TikTok in America. TikTok is good for small businesses. Just makes you think, why are you saying these things? You know? Is there something we need to know about? Because I didn't realize Jamal was such a big TikTok guy. You know, he's doing his little dances. He's going like going like that, like Jamal. I agree. I agree with that. Let's 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 um let's talk about a little bit of crypto stuff. <laughs> talk about a little bit of crypto stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like, all right. Let's talk about uh, the Wells notice that got served to Coinbase because that, that's the big one. So SEC served Coinbase a Wells notice Wednesday afternoon over concerns about alleged securities violations. The Wells Notice, which uh, precedes an enforcement action, states that the SEC will be targeting Coinbase's spot market, staking service, Coinbase Prime, and wallet. So, man, that is basically everything. Um, and it, there was uh, Paul Gruel. Yeah, that's everything. That's everything. And, you know, Paul Gruel, who's the chief legal officer at Coinbase, he dropped a blog. And, you know, he kind of highlighted, you know, two years ago, that he kind of dropped like a history from the Coinbase perspective, obviously, of what happened. But, you know, two years ago, the SEC reviewed Coinbase in detail. They proved Coinbase to go public. Um, and clearly, like the S1 explained their asset listing process and included, you know, 57 different references to staking. Um, you know, again, this is all, all from Paul's blog. I'm kind of summarizing here. But over the past nine months, Coinbase has met with the SEC more than 30 times. They shared details of their business. Uh, you know, building a path towards registration, blah, blah, blah. They said the SEC never gave them any feedback. Last July, uh, Coinbase filed a petition with the SEC calling for more regulatory clarity, still no response. They spent millions, you know, in dollars and manpower, you know, trying to draft a, a registration proposal. You know, they've basically, you know, his his perspective is that Coinbase has done everything that they can, you know, even go, gone above and beyond to try to act in a responsible way and register with the SEC. And... His point was that this this just didn't feel like you know due process or that this was just. But I'd be curious to get both your perspectives. I think all this stuff eventually needs to end up in the courts. The courts are like the most American, most egalitarian you know thing that we have, and it doesn't exist in every country. And we're very lucky that it's not just like Gary Gensler calling the shots, and you know that's how it is. 
the grayscale hearing was a disaster for them. You know, it looks like a couple of the other cases are going to be harder fought or harder to win than they might have otherwise anticipated. And so you've got, you know, Coinbase going up against, and they're, they're the most resourced company in the U.S., going up against the SEC for something that appears to be related to staking. I would guess it's ETH. And so in the process, you're likely going to have to prove that ETH is a security, which <laughs> there's just not a great fact pattern there either. I, I think this is scary for Coinbase in the sense that the downside is real. Um, but I would give them pretty good chances, you know, in, in a court of law. And we have a general counsel and, you know, most things he's like, oh, fuck, like, this is not good or whatever. He's like, this is, you know, actually pretty interesting. This could go Coinbase's way. And that's kind of what the rest of crypto Twitter lawyer section, lawyer division has also said. People are excited to see this in court because it feels like at last we're going to have a fair shake. Yeah. <clears throat> Only thing I'd add there is uh, Coinbase is the most, probably the most litigious company uh, representing the industry. Like we know exactly where this is going. I kind of view this as like the situation when, you know, in an old Western town, it's like, all right, I'll meet you at noon in the town square, you know, guns, guns blaring. But, you know, it, it, SEC knows exactly what they're doing with Coinbase. This is like the big kahuna that they've all been waiting for. Everybody knows exactly what's going to happen, which is frankly like this is going to go to court and it's going to take years. It will literally take years to be able to process this. Look at Ripple. That was what, 2019? Uh, and, and we're still talking about it. It still hasn't been settled. And this, I think, will probably be even more so. Um, but the fact of the matter is like the fact pattern is really positive for Coinbase. You know, this was a business model, which obviously talks about staking in the S1 that was approved by the previous iteration of the SEC. And for whatever reason, you know, this SEC decided that it was not, you know, the business that they should still be in. So uh, it, it, it does kind of question, you know, are we talking about not just the political politicalization of all of the, the previous stuff that we we're talking about macro wise, but are we also talking about the politicization of regulatory bodies? And, and that becomes a big problem. But to Vance's point, the courts are not politicized. I like their odds, I, I think is overall the point. And, you know, the more the regulators push on things like this, it, it's hard for Republicans to get like super behind crypto from first principles as a broad, you know, statement of the Congress and senators. But Republicans love what Democrats hate and Republicans love pushing back on government overreach and you don't need to be for or against crypto to know that that is what's happening here. And, you know, you're just kind of building up this bucket of goodwill with one party as they see this government overreach happen, especially on the regulatory side. So if things ever change, you know, from a congressional or Senate split or the presidency, it probably looks a lot different in terms of what the regulatory landscape does as well. Yeah, I think it's a little bit it's a little bit of a bummer because I don't feel like it was destiny. It didn't need to happen like this, but it is becoming just a completely partisan issue, crypto. And you saw, you know, DeSantis came out and said, we're not going to have a CBDC in Florida. Uh, you know, that's probably some bit of political posturing. You know, he's done stuff like this in the past. Like he sent up you know, the, uh, you know, immigrants. To, to no, those vineyard. are not the same thing. Those are not the same. Thing. <laughs> you know, these people are all, you know what they're doing? I didn't understand this until I started doing like media and tweeting and stuff. They're like, you know, when you have got a fire tweet, you're like, this shit's going to 
rip. This is going to be a ripper. That's what they do. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to bust these people up to Massachusetts, hit them in Martha's Vineyard. That That's the game. That's the game that's being played. And whatever. I respect the game. But I think that's what he's doing, too. But if that gets the thing done, I guess it gets the thing done because I think a CBDC would be disastrous. I think it would be horrible. We're getting presidential candidates to stake out positions on crypto. Like that's what's happening here. And and it's not because DeSantis loves crypto. It's because he hates big government and he hates what the Democrats are doing. And he hates the CBD study that's going on right now. So it's kind of like the enemy of your enemy is your friend a little bit. Um, and I think that's how I would categorize like the Republicans right now. But then you have Republicans like, and very important ones, Patrick McHenry, Tom Emmer, that are in leadership positions in the house that are very pro crypto because they know what it is. And so like over time, you hope that core grows to the rest of, of the, you know, Republicans at least. And Ro Khanna and all the Democrats, I feel like they know what crypto is. I don't know about you, Michael, but like, I feel like they're pretty reasonable. 100%. I, I was going to say, I don't think that this is necessary. Like crypto is not a partisan issue as much as it is an age issue. And, and I think that, you know, if anybody came into in into you know congressional or, or senatorial seat in the last five years, three years, maybe they know what it is. They understand the power of it, but also they understand that the number one, the number two thing that everybody has in the Robinhood account behind an S and P five hundred index is some form of crypto. If you are under the age of thirty five, if you're over the age of thirty five, it's literally the opposite, and. I think everybody, at, at least at some point, is the bit is going to flip as people start to realize, you know, where where the younger generation is actually trending. Uh, the problem is we just don't have a, a mass, or we don't have representation in our government at the moment. Also, the youngs don't vote. We're not good voters. We're gonna have to change that. Things are gonna get so bad if if like you know the worst plays out here that it's really gonna be a, a call to mobilize because. I don't, I don't know if, yeah, it's just going to be tough if we have another four years of like bank failures and inflation. Poor decision-making, weak leadership on it's, you know, weak leadership, but uh, let, let's talk about a little bit about the Arbitrum airdrop. Cause that, you know, I, I don't, I'll be honest. I don't have much of a take here. <laughs> you know, I was going to say it dropped. The, they they, dro- it they dropped. did it. Congrats. It dropped. Yeah. Everyone Radio. saw it. Phenomenal. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's trading at 1.38, which is. 13, $14 billion. And we're back launching 11 figure FDV tokens like the bull market never ended. <laughs> like, wait, 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 wait. What, what's, the, what's the fully diluted versus the market cap? Or what's the percent trading right now? So they did 11% airdrop. So they've got about uh, 1.5 billion out, but their fully diluted is 11.5. Yep. Math checks out. <laughs> Many such cases, but you know, hey, time can, I flat you guys, can I get you guys to speculate on something? Actually, I just just have a question about this. Um, so let's say let's say like to oversimplify here, what ends up happening on Ethereum is you got Ethereum mainnet, you got generalized layer twos, and then you've got uh, kind of app specific blocks like roll apps, whatever the whatever the word that you want to use is. Between those three. How do you think the value distributes? So, I mean, ETH is going after a, a market of being both technology and money. And the key thing is like, number one, what is the business of L1? 
The business of L1 are like the central banks of DeFi, Maker, Aave, and all the best NFTs, and basically like the main stage for finance. You know, when when the really big battles play out, like UST getting liquidated or, you know, BlockFi or Genesis going under, all that stuff clears on-chain on Ethereum L1. So like they have sticky demand, it's not going anywhere. The question is also like, not just, okay, is there one L2, is there two L2, are there a thousand? Are there 3,000? Because then it's like, okay, even if they cannibalize your fees, you're going to have enough call data booting put on chain where that's generating a lot of additional fees. And like, honestly, I, I view the L2s as technology. Like they're not going after the market of being the next reserve currency of the planet. So like you have to discount them. You can't give them that high of a multiple and you need to value them based on fees. And, you know, most things are valued at you know, the biggest tech companies in the world and some of the fastest growing are 10 to 12 to 15x next 12 month revenue. And that's being very generous. We're probably looking at like a few thousand X in uh, some of these L2s and, and some of these L1s. So, you know, am I bullish on an 11 figure coin? Like that's always going to be a challenge no matter what it is. But at that point, you better be producing real fees for me to be excited about it. The, the way I think about it is it's sort of like the dichotomy between AWS versus like maybe Facebook or Snapchat as an application that was built on top of that infrastructure where you can have. And, and to be clear, you know, th there's a professional class of investors that invest in Snapchats and Facebooks and applications. And that's, you know, basically the venture capital thesis right there. There's also a, a class of investors who buy AWS stock, Amazon stock in 2006, because they understand that it's going to become the platform, but it's not necessarily something that you can invest in from a venture scale outcome, which is like a thousand X. And so I think you've got just a risk reward difference. That being said, I, I do think that, you know, it really does to Vance's point, depend on what the value accrual model is. If you're, if you're talking about the promise of future platform level participation and therefore revenue and cash flows, that's great. But like, you have to prove that, especially uh, under the guise, under the backdrop of ETH being able to generate that and, and some applications on top of ETH being able to generate that. And, and so it really does come down to like, what are the metrics? What are the value accrual models? But I, I kind of think about it as like platform versus application. And you might have apps that are super, super valuable. But the definition of a platform, at least, is, you know, the, the value, the economic value that's created on top of the platform is greater than the platform itself. Um, and so, so I, I kind of, yeah, it's, it's that dichotomy. It's a tough one. I, I, I was just curious to see what you guys thought because I was kind of thinking about it myself. Keep in mind, none of the crypto trades on, or very little of crypto trades on fundamentals. You're seeing like glimmers of hope in that direction right now, but I can't explain to you why Ripple was worth 15 billion at the bottom. You know, when everyone was getting liquidated and things were terrible, I don't have an, a, a logical explanation for that. And so sometimes you just have to suspend disbelief. If you're really going to like get into crypto, it, it would be hard to get in with like a very, very, very skeptical lens. I agree with that. We were talking to this uh, partner of ours, who's also an investor, and he recently was like, I'm, I'm convinced there's a formula to be able to predict how something will become valuable. And it's like, I've, don't even, you don't even want to go there. Like, it's not going to work. <laughs> but, you know, you know, people are like, why, why? This doesn't make any sense. Like, ultimately, it, it comes down to animal spirits and fundamentals. That's it. Yeah, Over time, hopefully more of the latter than the former. Yes. I think it will. There's but no, no, one, no one can explain why Tesla trades where it is either. You know? 
like I, I do understand we need to be rational here, but within the context of the environment that we're operating in, it's tough. I mean, isn't the, the you know the the theoretical rationale for what a you know what an equity is valued as the discounted sum of all its future cash flows? The important part there being the future, like people's ideas and their expectations about where a company is going to go changes quite a bit. So I don't know if the last twenty maybe this is just me being you know, a millennial and my experience with investing has been crazy manipulated up only insanity. I'm sure it probably isn't always like that, but for my entire, like it, it wasn't always attention like to that. markets. Yeah. So <laughs> security analysis uh, by Benjamin Graham was written in 1936. Twitter did not exist in 1936. <laughs> like th there is this element that we've kind of been talking about, which is like, is it worth revisiting all of the models, all the mental models, all the formulas that we have for, you know, politics, finance, just general perspectives on things for this new normal? And I think mm. that the smartest people, the earliest adopters are actually moving in that direction. But it, it, it does kind of beg the question of like, it's not a total ripping and replacing, but do we need to adjust or do we need to add to our perspectives or our formulas to be able to actually get to what's what what the new normal is? Yeah. There was some, I, I had a friend of mine, we were talking about this when COVID was happening and it was that crazy, you know, markets mania sometime in 2021, you know, we were looking at the company Snowflake, uh, you know, oh, Snowflake, yeah. and we basically did this like back of the napkin math where it was like the wildest, you know, in order for that price to be rational, like the wildest expectation was, I forget, like some, like a hundred billion dollars of revenue and like X percent profit margins. And there are companies that are already there that were trading at like one tenth the value, you know? So it just, you got to kind of look at that and just say, people aren't wildly, people aren't as rational as everyone would like to believe. I don't think in no. terms of even, pricing. Stuff. Even like the, you know, not going to name any names of their investors, but like the Silicon Valley set, especially like the growth investing set, Really, you know, if you ask them about Snowflake, they'd be like, oh my God, like this is going to change the planet. You know, it's it's not just about the next two years. It's about the next 200 years. It's like, okay, does that even make sense? Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not invested on a 200 time frame here. Pally. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, that's insane. To me. And, and then you look at CNBC and it's, I was, I turned it on the other day and it was, they were doing a segment called Grade the Trade. And they would all throw out like ridiculous trades and they would grade each other. Oh, you get a C or like, that's an A plus trade. We're all doomed if that is what's going to happen here <laughs> over the long term. You know, to be honest, that's hilarious content that, you know, people give CNBC a tough time. It's like, whatever, it's like, man. It's, you know, it's retail. Five in the afternoon, you're yeah. having like a yogurt. You put CNBC on, it's just an absolute circus. Yeah, you're having a yogurt <laughs> as one does at 245. <laughs> Is what it is, I guess, but I wouldn't call yeah. them, you know, any smarter than your average retail investor. If markets were efficient, we wouldn't have jobs. Yeah. I, I thought about that. That was that was a deep thought I had the other day. It's like, is chat GBT eventually just gonna be able to like ingest everything and spit out trades? Probably, I've, but they they will probably be very similar to everyone else's trades. Because that's like the biggest trading data that it has, right? Let me ask you guys a question. This was this is probably a stupid question, but if there there might be a business or something in, tr in terms of like transforming data in such a way that it could get processed by ChatGPT or, or, or you know whatever AGI is behind it, because I was actually thinking, what if you could feed all of the transaction, like blo blockchain's entire transaction log, you know, entire history 
into a blockchain and just into ChatGPT and just ask it questions, you know? And, could, and all the centralized order book data. Yeah, it could probably come up with some wild insights, you know? Like, I know. So we we actually we actually have a couple of uh, at least one portfolio company who, as one of the proof points of their product, they're going to have Chat G- GPT, but for uh, Dune Analytics, you ask a question and it'll tell you the answer. Dude, that's um, yeah. They, I mean, this isn't a, this has been pointed out, but it is funny that everyone's like, yeah, the blue collar workers they're going to get screwed, and it actually is probably the white collar. Oh my uh, god, that was so that, funny. First of yeah. all. The thing that everyone always said with AI is like, don't worry, the business people will go first, but we're going to protect the artists and we're going to protect the people who like really like you can't, you know, you can't replicate the passion of these people. And then the first thing we did was create a way to create any image and disrupt every artist and never pay them any more money. It's just like, oh, we eliminated the artists first and all the white collar jobs are going to go last. Literally last night, I'm, we have GDC Game Developers Conference here in San Francisco, and, and I was at uh, one of our portfolio companies' events, was having a conversation with a game uh, company CEO who's like, yeah, we used to have eight people on the creative team. Now I have mid-journey, and it works just fine. <laughs> Life comes at you fast. <laughs> it does. <laughs> It does, man. That is, uh, that's we're w- real, real stuff. We're going to need to find places for all of these people because if we have all of the artists not getting paid, it's going to get so wild. People are going to be pissed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is a, pr- it's a funny thing to be like, oh, yeah, we saw you guys don't need to work anymore. You know, that should be this, you know, euphoric kind of. Oh, I just I read this book. Um, I'm gonna blank on the name. This was a uh, shoot. I think it was like Children's Time or something like that. I cranked through it on audiobook. But the premise of this book is aliens come. Is written in like 1953. Arthur Clarke is the name of the 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 author. And he the premise was aliens come down to Earth and they're benevolent. And they solve all of Earth's problems. Just solve everything like overnight. You know. And uh, it basically starts out from that kind of hypothetical and then branches out from there. I don't want to ruin the plot of the book, but it's extremely interesting. And one of the predictions, one of the things that this guy writes in 1953 is that with so many problems solved, content explodes and people sit around consuming content all the time to a point, and he actually says this, where some people consume content for as much as three hours per day, three hours per day. Like that was a mind-blowing number that you know people wouldn't really believe you know written down in the book and now it's like i have five and a half hours of screen time on my phone <laughs> you know i would love to get it down to three you ever read you ever read snow crash i haven't actually so so, no. so this is uh that's a good one uh the the premise is that the only job left after ai takes over mm-hmm. is delivering pizza and that is that's the one job that that is left for humanity <laughs> <laughs> we're laughing right now, but you were just talking about three hours of content per day. No, I, I know <laughs> it's, it's worrisome. Shout out to, anyway. I mean, it's, it's going to be a wild decade. It just feels like it's going to be super volatile and yeah. that's probably a good thing. At that, least for the, us. The, the, the crazy thing is it's not going to happen. It's already happening. The, the AGI stuff is, it's, 
Yeah, I'm a little bit of a, like a, a Luddite, like a closet Luddite. I know we all work in crypto, but I kind of have a little bit of a distrust of technology and I don't like buying software and stuff like that. The the I've been trying to wrap my mind around the implications of ChatGPT and it's a little frightening, to be honest. Well, you have really you seen the South Park episode? No. Oh, they wrote a whole episode, right? Oh my God. Oh, yeah. He, uh, Stan hooks his phone up to ChatGPT to text his girlfriend back. <laughs> And like they have this like amazing relationship, and at one point she's just like, "Yeah, there's just one thing I don't get about the boating accident in Switzerland." And he's like, "Wait, what?" Like ChatGPT's been making up this whole separate life for me. Blows up his relationship, blows up his family. It's like, yes, this is exactly how it's going to happen. So many people are going to get caught, caught texting their girlfriends via ChatGPT. My girlfriend, <laughs> not yours though, right? Vince? No, never. <laughs> <laughs> One of, one of my friends has been using that for uh, for, for uh, Hinge. <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> He's like, everybody's going to start using it. I'm ahead of the curve. <laughs> he is. Wow. This is yeah. also the friend who, on uh, without meeting um, uh, someone he met on Hinge, is going to a wedding in Tokyo with her. Hmm. So ChatGPT already made up a, a trip. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was right out of time. Yeah, it's been a fun one. All right, we'll see you next week.